This is episode 283 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can play a direct role in supporting the work we do here by becoming a patron today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. If you'd like to go beyond the episode and really try out some of the history you learn about here on our show, then consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare offers digital history activity kits that let you cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Find out more at CassidyCash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hello, I'm Nick Humphrey, curator of furniture at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. The 16th century ball would have been and was and was leather made from a couple of panels and and stitched together with obvious seams on the outside. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Shakespeare's lifetime, the game we call soccer here in the U.S., known as football in Europe, was a popular game for Shakespeare's lifetime. That's right. It was around for William Shakespeare. In fact, some sources say that the game of football was invented in England during the Middle Ages. These original forms of football were called mob football, or sometimes folk football, and would be played in towns and villages involving two opposing teams that would struggle by any means necessary to drag an inflated pig's bladder to specific markers set up at each end of the town where the game was held. Shakespeare mentions the game of football twice in his plays, once in Comedy of Errors. Dromeo says, quote, am I so round with you as you with me that like a football you do spurn me thus? You have to feel bad for the football, poor football being treated, mistreated during the game. Then in King Lear, the Earl of Kent references football again, saying, quote, nor tripped neither, you base football player, end quote. So they're even slinging insults like you would hear from the stands um, in a soccer or football game today. That's that's fun to me, I think. One of these inflated pig's bladders was actually found intact in the rafters of Stirling Castle. This surviving football dates to the 16th century and could have belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots. Here today to tell us more about 16th century football, the artifact discovered at Stirling Castle, and to share the results of his own scientific experiments comparing the Stirling Castle football to modern soccer balls is our guest historian and scientist, Henry Hansen. Henry Hansen wrote a PhD thesis in football or soccer impact mechanics and dynamics in the Mechanical Engineering School of Loughborough University and has bachelor's degrees in German and mechanical engineering from the University of Portland in Oregon. His current work in the Adidas Innovation Team comprises aerodynamics, mechanics, test machine design, and human product interaction to improve performance, accessibility, and enjoyment of sport. Outside the office, he runs cycles, lifts, and always has a couple of science-based 
art projects in progress. You can find out more about Henry at the links in today's show notes. Hello, Henry. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Good morning. Nice to be here. Soccer and football, obviously in Europe and in America, these are two very different games. From Shakespeare's lifetime, would the sport that he's referring to as football in his plays be more like European soccer or more like American football in terms of how it was played? I think it would have been a good mix between the two. So I think the the reference point that I have is in the middle of the 1800s, football and rugby kind of did a split when they when they started to make the rules when the football association came into play. And so before that, it seems likely that there would have been kind of a combination of the hand-based rules and the foot-based rules. So some somewhere in between, I guess. Uh, I've also heard it called a mob a mob type of activity, a mob sport as well. So Yes, I've heard that mob violent. mob football or even folk football, but basically some kind of combination of tons of people falling on the ball and trying to get it from one end to the other. So yes, yeah, by any means necessary, trying to move it. Yeah. <laughs> and not nice either. They This is a rough and tumble sport for sure. Yeah, dangerous. Dangerous. Who was it that was playing football in the 16th and 17th century? I think were there individual teams or was there any kind of fan base or groups for each one? Did you have townspeople that were cheering for one side or the other? Or was this just a kind of a kick up game that people would do for fun? It seems like it was a, a a town-based thing and those not playing would be cheering, but not necessarily kind of a, an organized team, just kind of anyone who supports the cause of moving it from one place to another would would kind of join in. So not not really kind of picking, you know, 11 aside or something. Another reference point, so it was banned a lot uh, until, you know, a couple hundred years ago, kind of banned on and off. I did read somewhere that it was one of the reasons for being banned was that it would deter people from archery practice. And so this could have also been a sport for for soldiers or or people who would become soldiers. Yeah, so they definitely wanted the the strong, capable men of the town to be prepared for battle. And they there were requirements about how much archery you were supposed to do. And if you were taken away from that by playing this game, I get the impression it was almost like a, a town fair or we think about a parade. It was very localized in that way where anyone representing the town would sort of pick sides and say, OK, I'm going to try and get the football from here to my side of town and you're going to try and get the football from here to your side of town. And it was it was anything goes. So it was just the town kicking it up and saying, all right, guys, let's yeah, go yeah. out and, and do this. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. Let's just move it across. Yeah. I was able to find a few 16th century woodcuts and drawings that depict this game being played from Shakespeare's lifetime. And in each of these images, it you understand exactly why mob football was the phrase that gets used to describe it. Because in the pictures, and I will place pictures in the show notes for today's episode so you can see exactly what we're talking about. But there's a group of men and they're always gathered around a large ball. It's always men. I haven't seen a portrayal of the game that included women yet, but there's a large ball in the center and clearly everybody is going after it. But what's interesting about the ball itself is that in, and I was able to find three different images and in all three of these images, the ball itself has a seam clearly visible as if the ball had been sewn together. And Henry, I know you've done a lot of work on the physical football. And I wonder, is this image consistent with what we know about early modern footballs? Was it something that had been sewn together? Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've seen some of those pictures as well. And there's one that comes to mind. It was the one I saw was colored. So maybe it was a, a colored wood, wood block. 
There was also someone being wheeled away in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> so, oh gosh, um, <laughs> quite, quite ambulatory a, quite a right sport. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And the seams, yeah, I think it's a kind of an interesting thing to include in a in a simple drawing. You know, to include a seam, it's not really a like a functional aspect of the ball. You, normally don't see people including scenes on on clothing on trousers or something so it's kind of interesting that it's included on there but the 16th century ball would have been and was and was leather made from a couple of panels and and stitched together with obvious seams on the outside my work and and i guess the the reason i'm here is i I have done a little bit of work um, research work on the 16th century football based off of one that was found in sterling castle some time ago Yes. And Henry has done extensive research on early modern footballs, specifically the one thought to have belonged to Mary, Queen of Scots, which dates to the 16th century. And it was found intact in the rafters at Stirling Castle. Henry, tell us about your research and what have you discovered about early modern footballs? And what was your work trying to uncover when comparing those footballs to something like a soccer ball that we have today? Yeah, so I I kind of came into it on accident. At, at the time, I was researching modern footballs or future footballs at uh, Loughborough University and the Sports Technology Institute. And we had just kind of a, a cold call from a historian with the Mary Rose Trust, who had created a replica version of the 16th century ball. So the one that was found in Stirling Castle. And he kind of came to it with with just a question of uh, like, you all research footballs. Here's an old one. What do you think of it? And so it seemed like a, a great opportunity to get involved in something a little bit different from my standard work. It was really great working with, so that was Mark Jones at the Mary Rose Trust. And he had also some uh, historian colleagues who have contributed to the, uh, the idea on the on the history side. Yeah, so we, we had this replica. It was made of, I guess, cow-based leather sewn with cotton thread. And the key ingredient missing when I received it was the internals. So the, the pig bladder. See, I was going to um, ask, because they talk about it being a pig bladder that's being tossed around. I was wondering if there was actually one inside these leather panels. Yeah. So that's, that's what I think for the, for the old ball. So for the 16th century ball, there's one and it's in, it's in a Sterling art museum right now, but looking at that one, they determined that the inside was a pig bladder. And I had heard that before that they use pig bladders filled with air I think it's also possible that they filled some with straw or or other leather as well. And that filling, I think, can be indicative of the type of game that would be played with that. And maybe that's something we can talk about a bit later. So so I had to procure, inflate, and install pig bladders into this leather, into this leather skin to make the full testable prototype, I guess, of the past. It was an odd request for the abattoir, but they still gave me um, four pig bladders for I think 25 pence a piece. I bet that was a fun phone call. Excuse me, but I'm going to need <laughs> four yeah, big I mean, letters, they, please. <laughs> they they didn't ask as many questions as I would have expected, and they gave them to me very clean. And yeah, it's an easy, easy transaction. Well, what were you looking for when you were like, how did you know you would need four pig bladders? What was the premise of your experiment that you were setting up? So I believed only one would be necessary, but I just needed some backups. And so I wanted to compare the, the 16th century ball, that construction with what we have today. And clearly there are differences. (laughs) I wasn't expecting anything to be similar, but it just was kind of a nice framework or something to use as a comparison. And I I think there was one one of the tests officially passed. (laughs) The rest of them didn't pass the current standards for football tests, but it still gives uh, a reference point that everyone can kind of relate to when they think of their experience with the normal ball. 
And we will link to Henry's YouTube video where he demonstrates this experiment that he performed on the ball. It's very interesting. He goes through a series of tests on the balls and kind of compares them to modern soccer balls. And as you're mentioning here, Henry, the comparison does fall short of modern football standards. But at the same time, it demonstrates a primitive version of the same game. You can tell that this was functional for the purpose that that it was intended in the 16th and 17th century. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the end result was a fun object. I, after sanitizing the bladders, I, I kind of put them in, inflated them with a straw, and then tied it off with a piece of string. And the bladders fit well within the within the ball, which was, I guess, a good match. And in the end, it was like a fun kind of playful object. It was really lightweight. It was really bouncy. It wasn't round, so it was more more the shape of a of a bladder, I suppose, which was a little bit more like a rugby ball. And because of that, it bounced somewhat erratically. So it was kind of a fun thing to chase around the lab. Oh, now I can just envision scientists in a lab chasing a 16th century football back and forth. And that's, <laughs> that's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was fun. And it, it I, I guess I was kind of unexpected by that. I didn't expect that, that it was just like a, I don't know, a little joyous moment trying to chase this chase this thing around. After it was complete, then I kind of subjected it to the types of tests that we do on a on a standard football. And I followed the, the FIFA test standards. So there's kind of six or seven tests. Yeah, made it made a comparison. So the the tests are there's one for rebounds, so how high it bounces after a drop. There's a sphericity test and a diameter measurement and a water absorption. And I also did a kick with a robot leg um, as kind of the final test because that one <laughs> that one destroyed it. I mean, it, it failed most of those tests. I think the the air permeability test was the one that it did pass. So it did maintain maintain air pressure for or sufficient air pressure for the 72 hour window. But the rest of them, I mean, it's not round. It doesn't bounce very high compared to a normal ball. And uh, it's it's not super durable. So we'd have to think that there probably weren't reusable soccer balls. These were probably created for the game they were intended to be played and and were probably spent by the time the game was was over, given how violent the game was said to have been. So we would have to I, I'm going to propose a hypothesis here that the football was probably recreated very often. These weren't ones that you would, you know, keep in your footlocker and, and get back out later to play another game. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. The bladder itself dries out. I, I don't have a lot of experience dealing with organs, but it was a very kind of stretchy and it felt actually quite durable. But after some time, it dried out and, and kind of had a paper-like texture. Does it get brittle after it's dry? Yeah, yeah. So not not usable for, for a ball, but uh, that can be replaced. So maybe maybe after every few days or before every match, you would just put in a new bladder inside the leather casing. Yeah, yeah, and, and keep the leather casing. Who was it that would have been responsible for putting these together in the first place? I mean, was this something that was commercially available? You go and buy a football in a shop or would individual craftsmen, maybe even members of these strung together teams have been putting it together when they wanted to play a game? I don't think it requires any special skills. I guess sewing a needle, <laughs> a needle, some thread and, and leather. It's I'd say it's like it's more simple to make than a shoe, for example, or, or than a garment. So it could have been something an individual would have made. There was a record of a purchase. So this was this was in about 1500, King James the Fourth, two shillings for a bag of footballs. <laughs> oh, fantastic! So this would have been in Scotland because James the Fourth is yeah still in Scotland. Okay, 
that's at least record of someone someone making a transaction for footballs. And and, and I guess, you know, royalties probably not going to make their own anyway, but <laughs> well, I would I would assume not, but it's exciting to think that he didn't just go and buy one. He bought an entire group of them, you know, a bag of footballs. So he was obviously planning to play with some regularity or in a group because you only need one per game so that there's a lot yeah. that you can yeah. infer from that one record. But, but speaking yeah. of it being the king that had ordered these, was football a game that would have been played at all levels of society? I mean, when we mentioned it being called mob football, I'm surprised that the king would want to play this. I would think it wouldn't be something that was played at higher levels of society just because of how messy and violent it was. I would assume they would want to be removed from that. What do surviving records about football tell us about who was playing it? and what the reputation of the game was for Shakespeare's lifetime. This might be where there's a split between the mob football and something that would have been played in the castle or by Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, or, or royalty. Because I, it doesn't seem like that would be a, a, a royal game. And, and also, like as we talked about earlier, it, would, it was banned for, for some times. And I think from what I've read, it's spoken of somewhat disparagingly in by Shakespeare. So I think that the reputation may have not been great. So the, the 16th century ball, which is like the technical properties of that are my kind of entry point into the history here. That one didn't seem like it would be suitable for a mob based game. So that one, it's, it was good in a room kind of, you know, bouncy and playful, but not durable, not something that you could, you know, like American football, you wouldn't want to be holding that if you were tackled, it would just, it would just burst. And so this this might be kind of a a split in football. So they're like maybe a mob side, and then something that was a little bit more gentle played more gently in a, in a castle. Something maybe more akin to hacky sack, or you know, kind of like a, a garden game rather than a, a street brawl. That goes back to what you were mentioning earlier about the various materials they would use to fill the pig's bladder. Because I imagine if they filled it with straw, it's much less likely to burst on a tackle, for example. Yeah, 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 or or leather or something, and easier to hold on to as well. So the the 16th century ball is about the size of a, I don't know, cantaloupe or so, and it's very lightweight. So it's not something that you can you can grasp so easily. Yeah, it doesn't have the finger holds like what away. we think of on a an American football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I know there was the 16th century football discovered at Sterling Castle was obviously the basis for your investigations into comparing 16th century footballs with modern ones. But are there any other surviving footballs that date to this time period to inform what we know about footballs from this period? Not that I'm aware. So I haven't I haven't seen anything for some time. But I mean, also, they're all they're all biological. <laughs> so so they probably broke down. Yeah. yeah, it's it's something that would easily easily degrade over time and and it wouldn't have much value after after all the materials dried out. So Do we know why the one at Sterling Castle survived? I mean, I I read that it was found in the rafters, but does that mean it was behind a wall or sort of encased somehow to be protected from the elements? Yeah, yeah, that to, to my understanding it was one of the reasons they're able to date it to that time period is it coincided with a documented renovation of the castle. So they say this is this is the last time this in 1540 or so this was the last time this particular room was was repaneled and so anything behind the panels is likely from that from that era and so this was only discovered in the in the 80s i think when the room was redone again yeah i guess the the hypothesis is that it was lost and repaneled and then and then kind of 
kept away from wind and air and rain for some time. So quite literally a time capsule. And we've we've covered on our show before the idea that sometimes people would put objects inside the wall of their home or castle for superstitious reasons. So there could have been something to that as well. Now, I know we would love to learn more about this topic and to explore um, the history and the science of what you've put together. Please tell us about where we can look for your science experiments or your YouTube video. Where can we find those? And then Tell us where you would recommend that we begin if we want to explore this history further. What are some resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Okay. Well, I wrote a conference paper for this that talks about the uh, the creation of the ball and the individual tests. It was uh, for the International Sports Engineering Association conference. And then I also made a video kind of uh, explaining that with some clips that I took during the time. Both of those, I guess the easiest way to, to mention that is my website. They're on there, which is H-N-R-Y-H-N-S-N dot me. So it's my name without without some of the vowels. <laughs> and you can find, find the video on the paper there. The ball itself is in the Smith Art Gallery and Museum. And they have a nice display set up there. I believe there's also some information in the Mary Rose Museum. So this, this battleship, very well-preserved battleship. And I... I wrote a little kind of excerpt about about the ball, and it might be at the museum still. But both, I think that both the the Smith Art Gallery and the, and the Mary Rose Museum would be good places to start looking looking into more information. Absolutely. And there is information about this also at Sterling Castle. So you can find information there. But I will link to Henry's website, as well as the video and where you can go and check out the ball at the Smith Art Gallery and Museum. And we'll make sure all of these links are placed in the show notes for today's episode. So stay tuned for the URL for where to find those. And we'll have it all nicely laid out there. So you can go directly to the information you would like to find. Now, Henry, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. Oof. We save the the hard questions for the end. (laughs) I mean, practically, it might be a a book on um, botany or some sort of kind of desert island survival manual that would tell me what plants to eat as a true scientist should yes <laughs> to be to be, be quite useful i think a book i've enjoyed reading about science to engineer is human henry petrovsky but i think if i had to pick something that that's so a book i've probably read the most and if it's a book i'm going to have to read for the rest of my life it would be something from calvin and hobbes <laughs> oh excellent choice that is the first time calvin and hobbes has made an appearance on our show but i'm going to have to second that as a great choice if you're stuck on a deserted island yeah so what's next for you what are you working on now that you're excited about well i actually i, I worked recently on the 2026 world cup football I'm still kind of involved in, in football engineering and research um, in my current role. So it's it's nice to to have that connection still. Yeah. And we're, you're talking 20, we're going to say European football or are you working on the American oh, football? Yeah. Soccer. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> soccer. My son plays soccer and he will be glad to know that the people responsible for making sure we have a very safe football came and visited with us on our show. That's very fun. Oh, great. Thank you so much for being here, Henry Hansen, and taking us through the history of Shakespeare's football and soccer for his lifetime and what that would have been like and helping us to understand this surviving artifact from Sterling Castle. This has been a really fun conversation, and I appreciate you being here to share it with us. My pleasure. I've enjoyed the discussion. Thanks. 
Now, I promised you I would pack a lot of extra visuals into the show notes for today's episode, and I have. You can go to CassidyCash.com slash episode 283, and there you will find links directly to Henry's website, more about the science of sports mechanics, as well as the video of his experiments into the football at Sterling Castle and some of that robot kicking and different tests that he did to compare what the football from Shakespeare's lifetime was like compared to modern soccer balls. It's a lot of fun soccer history. I've also included the woodcuts and the artifacts showing exactly what 16th century football looked like for Shakespeare's lifetime. So you can find all of these visuals and artifacts packed into the show notes. Again, that URL is CassidyCash.com slash episode 283. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 283. Now, if you'd like to go beyond the episode and really try out some of the history you learn about here on our show with your hands to really get a piece of it and bring it home to your classroom or just right into your kitchen, then you should consider becoming a member of Experience Shakespeare. Experience Shakespeare offers a collection of hands-on history activity kits. These let you try out things like 16th century Tudor soap balls, playing the card game of naughty, or learning how to play bowling, which was another popular game along with football from Shakespeare's lifetime. We tie them in with the plays where they are mentioned and we give you all of the information you will need to perform these activities at home. The kits come with tutorials, supply lists, and instructions, as well as bonus history guides. So it makes it really easy to take these activities into your study of Shakespeare's plays. Or if you're a history enthusiast, it just makes the play so much more fun because now you understand the different things that they're talking about. If you like the idea of diving into the 17th century and getting to try out some history for yourself, then join us inside Experience Shakespeare, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That Shakespeare Life is powered by our patrons. We are able to do the work we do here each week of researching and connecting with the guests and bringing you the world's best Shakespeare history every week, all because our show is supported by listeners like you who sign up to be our patrons. Patrons get an inside look at the making of our show, and they get to participate in creating That Shakespeare Life with suggesting topic ideas, sneak peeks at upcoming guests, and they even submit their own questions to be asked during an interview. If you enjoy learning history with us here each week and want to play a direct role in supporting the work we do here, then sign up to be a patron right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.